Thank you, Mitch, for reading that for us. Goodbye, Bridge. And in case you're a fifth grader or younger and you missed the kids slipping out, you have church too. So an usher in the back can take you there if you need to go to church. You're welcome to go, fifth grade and younger. Um, My name is Melissa, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's always a joy to get to open the word and share. Dee is away. He's been in Oklahoma City all week. His daughter, Savannah, graduated from college, so little Sav's growing up. Here she goes. So yay for her. If she's listening to the podcast, Savannah, that was for you. Um, Thank you, Hap. I'm so glad that you acknowledged the band. It was such a wonderful experience to sit here and to worship and to have so many new faces um, leading us in that. It was wonderful. And speaking of songs, my little segue here into the message this morning, um, as Mitch was reading the scripture, I'm just curious, I'm having some trouble, I always have trouble with that, there we go, I'm just curious if as he was reading, a song may have occurred to you. As I've been sitting with this passage now for weeks and weeks, A song from my childhood has been nonstop playing, and I know my mom and my sister will know it. First service really let me down, so let's see if you know it. Okay, Sarah, hit it. We're bringing it. Here we go. Oh, Prentice, hit it. (laughs) Oh, can you start it? Start it over, because it's really got a punch. Okay. A royal priesthood. No one knows. Come on, Mom. Yes, you know it. A peculiar people that you for the praises of him. Yes. I thought you would be resounding this. (laughs) Okay, you can take it away. They don't like it. It's fine. It's fine. Now, I loved this song growing up. I think it's like the catchy marching beat to it. But I think what I loved most is that I definitely learned the word peculiar from this song. It calls you a peculiar people. I had to figure out what that was. That's a fun word to say, and I liked being a part of the peculiar people. So, my peculiar people here this morning, we're going to dive into Peter together. Now, about first and second Peter, John Wesley, who's considered sort of the theological father of the Church of the Nazarene, the church where we are right now, John Wesley says about Peter's writings that there's this wonderful combination of weightiness, of liveliness, and of sweetness that are contained in the epistles of St. Peter. So there's this combination of weightiness, of liveliness, and of sweetness. And I think that that combination perfectly captures the complexity and the richness of all that Peter is trying to accomplish and say in these letters. We see this balance between these three things, even here in the first 10 verses of this chapter. It's such a short passage, but we really see these three themes. We see the weightiness in his reference to sin and the consequences thereof. And as he's hinting and alluding to the coming persecution that they might face, which is grave and heavy. But then we also sense in these 10 verses the liveliness of a church just figuring out what it is. It's a brand new baby church trying to discover its identity and its purpose. And there's a sense of movement and vibrancy throughout Peter because of that. But then also Peter talks in very intimate ways about his connection to God 
through the Spirit, this new gift to them. And you can really sense that connection and intimacy that he's talking about that he shares with his believers around him. And so that's the sweetness component there, too, that we see just in these first 10 verses of this chapter. And as you look through this, there's a lot going on in there. There's a lot of things that could be spoken on and looked into today. And so to help navigate that, I'm going to explore just a few of the stylistic techniques that Peter uses. Some of his tricks and tips as a writer that he uses to pull us in and to teach us. Now, you may have noticed as you were following along on the screen or if you're looking in your Bible or your device, and if you do have it open, I would encourage you to stay there because we're going to reference it a lot and kind of look at some different things that are happening in here and go back to the scripture over and over. Um, but you maybe noticed as Mitch was reading that, that this section was full of quote marks. There are numerous direct quotations as a part of this. But it took me several times reading through it as I was preparing to preach today that I noticed that there are also multiple references to Hebrew scripture throughout that that aren't direct quotations but could have quotes around them because they're practically quotes. Peter is very purposefully bringing forward Old Testament prophecy. He reaches back for praise and pulls it forward. He leans on old wisdom, brings it into the today, and he does that to craft a very particular message to his hearers. In fact, six of the ten verses that were read for us are either direct quotations or they heavily allude to scripture that's Hebrew scripture that his audience would surely be familiar with. And so we're going to take a look at these quotes and allusions that he pulls forward, these pieces that he grabs from Isaiah and from the Psalms and from Hosea and that he gives new life to in a new context. So we're going to walk back through some of the scripture. And at the beginning here, he's got this, this um, invitation to them to think of themselves as children, as babies. And as he gives that, he says, you do this because you have tasted and you have seen that the Lord is good. And Peter's not making that up. He is pulling that directly from Psalm 34. It is a direct quotation. And then later, as he starts to describe the stone and the foundation and Christ as the cornerstone, he refers to Isaiah 28. And he says, see, I lay in Zion, a chosen and a precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Similarly, he pulls from the Psalms. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he goes back to Isaiah where he says, the stone that causes people to stumble and the rock that causes them to fall, as he continues to describe this movement, this newness that's been created since Jesus has come to earth. And then later, as we keep going, he talks about once we recognize that we are this chosen people and this royal priesthood, which we'll get into in just a bit, that our response is to declare the praises of God. And while certainly declaring praise is a theme over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament, he's drawing heavily on Psalm 77 and 78, where similar references are made to the people of God and they respond with declarations of praise. And then the very end of these 10 verses is fully from Hosea, Hosea 2. Once you were not a people, and now you are the people of God. Once you had no mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, Peter, as he's speaking, is not just reaching back, selecting things at random, and like phoning in a good sermon by relying on 
prophets of old. He's very, very intentionally selecting scriptures that make a case for who he and other believers are to be now. And he makes sure that this claim on their new identity is going to resonate with both Jewish listeners and Gentile listeners. For it's certain that the Jews who would be in the crowd would not miss the references he's making to the cornerstone being Jesus. This cornerstone language is consistent throughout the prophets of old and the way that they would talk about what was to come, and he's saying it's here. It's a direct message for his Jewish listeners. But then he also is thoughtful about the Gentiles, those outside Jewish faith who've been brought in by relying on Hosea. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. He's including them. He's bringing the Jews that may feel disaffected back in. You are welcome. There is space and place for you. Now, Peter relies heavily on Scripture to move us through time and recognize the place that we once were and are now. But he also relies on some other really important devices to create this rhythm that we have moved from old to new, from former reality to a present and new reality. And as I kept reading and staying in this chapter, it's the kind of repetition, this swing from old to new, from former to present, it's the kind of repetition that makes you stop and say, wait, wait a minute. There is actually, I think, something intentional going on here. And the more you read this, the more you see that there's these little tiny connecting words that often we see something said and then the word now and then something else. Or something said and then the little word but and then something else. And that now and but serve to help move us through time, much like the scriptures did that he's bringing forward. And so we're going to look at those. So we're going to go back to the text and just walk through it. If you've got your scripture open, if not, I'll just name them. That in verses 1 and 3, he's talking about movement from malice, from deceit, from hypocrisy and envy, from slander. And now you have tasted that the Lord is good. In verses 8 and 9, he talks about those who've disobeyed the message. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's special possession. In 8 and 9 again, he speaks of those who disobeyed the message and he contrasts that by saying, but there are those, there are you who declare praise. In verse 9, he takes us out of darkness, and now we're in light. In, verses in verse 10, we were not a people, now we are the people. We did not receive mercy, now we have received mercy. It's, it's got to be intentional. There's too many movements like that, too many swings from who we, once, who we used to be to who we are now. And I'm convinced that Peter is marrying this frequent use of Scripture and this frequent reminder that they are living in a new now for good reason. He is, as I said, addressing both Jews and Gentiles in this modern-day Turkey region, He's addressing the church in Rome, and he's addressing Jews and Christians scattered throughout the broader region. Now, Dee taught us last week, as he got us started into 1 Peter, into first Peter, 
he taught us that the group that Peter is addressing particularly is a group of people who've been stripped of their rights. They aren't even really considered citizens. And this group of people are the target of Nero's persecution. It's ramping up, and it's only about to get worse. And so Peter, who has been named as the rock of the church and takes his role seriously to protect them, Peter understands the need and the real legitimate urgency to unite this group of people, to strengthen their commitment to Christ, and to empower them that they really can live boldly and bravely in the face of all the things that they are about to go through. He's telling them, you once were disobedient. You once were in the darkness. You once were people of malice and hypocrisy and slander. But the Lord has been good, and you have declared praise, and you are the chosen people, and you are in the light. Now, I don't know if this landed well in first service. I'm not great at the sports analogy, but I, I just can't help but think that Peter is like, you know those really classic sports movies like Rudy or Hoosiers or Remember the Titans? Like, there's that moment where the coach like, gets everybody around, and it's that quintessential speech like, you once were this. Remember how far we've come. See how good of a coach I would be? Why am I not brought in more? I'm like so unathletic. I don't even really know what I'm saying here. But <laughs> come on, people. You know where you were. You know where you came from. And I'm telling you, this is where you're going. This is the people that you are. Kobe, yes. Thank you. It worked. You can always count on Ed. Yes. Um, <laughs> I just think that he is rallying them and reminding them who they really are and where they're headed. And if these scriptural reminders, and if these movements through time that he continues to create for them weren't enough, Peter uses another literary approach to reach his audience. He relies on two metaphors. They're unique, and I think they're pretty intriguing that they're placed here together. Now, I had such a hard time this week coming up with a title for the sermon. It's, it's not mind-blowing. Living Sanctuaries is the title of the sermon, and it's, it's fine. It's, it's appropriate. Um, but I was getting a little bit loopy trying to come up with it, and there's a printing deadline, and that's basically what made me make my decision, uh, being to totally honest. But there was a moment when I wanted to potentially call it Babies and Stones, and then I thought that would look weird in the e-news. The, the, the sermon on babies and stones. Like, do they go together? That sounds hurtful, scary. It's Mother's Day. We want to go a little bit gentler with the babies. Um, so Peter suggests right away, like right as you start out in this section, that we be like babies, newborn ones, in fact, that we be growing up into our salvation. And then just three verses later, he compares us to living stones. And he says, we are to be built up into a spiritual house. Babies and stones. See, it would have worked. It would have been just fine. Now, these metaphors in and of themselves are quite common language that we use all the time to give expression and character to this experience that we're continually having with God. It is not abnormal at all to talk about being born again. In fact, it's the central way that we talk about conversion this amazing experience of God coming into our lives and transforming us. And we talk frequently about being the new creation. 
that we live in this new way because of what Christ has done for us, and we are being made into a new creation. So that's not strange language, and it's not a weird metaphor at all. In fact, it's really appropriate. And similarly, stones are a common metaphor for us as believers. We want to be people who build our lives on a firm foundation, who build our house on the solid rock. We want to be strong and firm. And we believe that that language helps call us into being grounded people who are anchored to Christ. But the more that I read this and stayed with this passage in Peter, the more that it occurred to me that it's odd that these two metaphors would be paired so closely together in the same teaching. It seems as though they're actually at odds with each other because they convey such different imagery and they seem to be delivering such different messages. We are to be like newborn babies. Babies have no other option but to grow. It's what they do. It's what we can count on. And each week in a newborn's first year is this like wonder of development. New skills are acquired at such a rapid pace. New challenges are overcome. And I, I took a, I'm not a mother myself, so I took a very deep dive, which turned into a very deep rabbit trail into parents.com, learning about baby development. And um, I almost showed you a two-minute video on it, and I was like, let's pull that back. We do not need to show that. To, to, to drive home the point that newborn baby growth is fantastical. I mean, it is just amazing what they can accomplish. Their eyes are tracking. They recognize voices. Every week, something new happens. And we are to be like this. We are to be these wide-eyed, stretching, crawling babies eager to grow and learn, really dependent on God as our guide and as our source of true life, that we are to be teachable, and we're the ones who are full of promise and hope, like a newborn child. But remember, we are also to be like stones, which in direct contrast to babies do not grow at all. And we wouldn't want them to. I really hope the stones that are holding up these walls do not grow. That would be a problem for us right now. We like and need our stones to be static, to be strong, to be secure, unchanging, foundational. And we strive to be these things as well, don't we? We want to endure. We want to be patient and strong and true. We want to be people who are loyal and dependable. And Peter's use of these metaphors back-to-back -back like this suggests that we are at once to be both beginners and at the same time well-established. That we are to be in movement constantly and also in this constant state of stillness. That we are to be brimming with possibility and potential but settled deep down into stability Maybe the best way I could put this is that we are supposed to be simultaneously taking the class and teaching the class, is what these two metaphors feel like when put together. How is this even possible? It does not actually make logical sense. And that's because it can't. That's because the Holy Spirit does not work within the bounds of logical sense. Perhaps the very last word that we would ever choose to describe a stone is living. 
it is very dead. And yet, through the power and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, the energy of the newborn and the stability of the stone fuse together to become the miracle of who we are in Christ, that we would actually be made into living stones. It is the mystery of who we become, of who we are when we are in God. And that right there is why it is so vital for Peter to drive home for his audience that they are living in a very different day. That the people who are hearing him are participants in a whole new way of interacting with God. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, something that many of them witnessed, has provided this ultimate sacrifice once and for all. And they're still getting used to that. Where previously the law was the pathway to communal living and holiness and purity, now grace and mercy lead us there freely. Where once priests had to intervene for us, now they can fully enter into the presence of God and have full access. The temple building that housed God, that temple building has been transferred to each of us as we become this somehow holy place where God resides. I'm certain that it's not just Peter's hearers that needed to hear that word, but it is also a bolstering reminder for us today that the old way has passed and the new way has come. The new way is breaking in every day. And we need to marvel at the unexplainable but the very undeniable movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is for us as well. It is this awe-inspiring, unspeakable mystery that we get to be the houses for God in this world, that we get to be sanctuaries then. We are living sanctuaries, people who are made of stone, but somehow growing day by day, walking around and taking God with us everywhere that we go. And that very fact that we are these living sanctuaries also makes us priests. In ancient Israel, priests were this distinct group, this spiritually elite group. And they would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And once a year, they would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple where God resided. And they would commune and worship and bring back a word on behalf of God for the people. And they would administer blessings to people. Their detailed job description, which is very detailed, is basically the book of Leviticus, if you're interested in checking it out. That is their job description. But in short, priests would worship, they would bless, they would mediate, repeat. That's their job in a nutshell. Priests acted as these mediators between God and the people. And I think that often when we conceive of this notion of being the royal priesthood now, I think we often consider it in terms of our open access and relationship to God, that we don't need a priest. We can be a priest who communes with God. And I think that is right. That is what we are told. That is, that is true. But I do think that that's only half of this priest gig. There is most certainly a worship and a prayer, and a communing, and a listening aspect to being priests in this temple that God has made us into. 
but we are also tasked with taking the things that we have learned from God and teaching those things to others. We are tasked with uh, speaking truth, with giving prophetic words and speaking into situations that seem hopeless. We, too, are tasked with giving blessings like priests of old, stepping into people's lives and offering mercy and comfort and relief, serving others, loving others, being God in the world. We are called to mediate. We are called to introduce and to bring God into the places that we go. And in so doing, we bring all those we come in contact with back to God. This should make us shake just a little bit. It's, it's a sort of amazing, grandiose responsibility and privilege that has been outlined for us to not only house God as a living temple, but then to be a priest and mediate God to the world. So as part of this royal priesthood together this morning, and as we move throughout this week and beyond, I invite us to marvel together that we truly have been made into living, breathing stones. Stones that form a house, a sanctuary for God. A place where we can together take up our truest job description. To worship, to bless, to mediate, repeat. I'm going to invite the band forward and invite you to pray with me. God, it truly is a holy and amazing responsibility to somehow get to partner with you in the work you are doing in the world. That you desire to reconcile everything to yourself, to restore creation, to give hope, to give a home, a name, to all of those that you love, all of that you have created, and you have asked us to help be your presence in the world. It is an awesome and a, an amazing responsibility that we don't take lightly, God, but we know that we need your help to accomplish. And so we invite you, God, in to our lives, fresh and anew. Help us move into this week aware of your presence alive within us, the gift of your spirit to us. And may we, with boldness and bravery, as we've been instructed to do today through your word, may we take up the task of being priests, May we commune with you and worship. May we seek you in quiet places. And then may we be quick to mediate, to bless, to teach, to give mercy to those around us. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray all these things.